you are listening to FC Popcorn, a film companion original podcast. And today we are going to be discussing the two films that came out this past week, uh, Oppenheimer and Barbie. I'm Pratyush and with me we have Suchin Mehrotra and Gail Sequera. This episode of FC Popcorn is in association with Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Get a whole month free at mubi.com slash filmcompanion2023. Just to sort of put it in perspective of how much the three of us have really lived Barbie Heimer in the last 48 hours. Or uh, Oppie. I think Oppie is... Oppie? Oppie? Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer Barbie? Oppen, Oppenheimer Oppie. Oppenheimer first. Oh, okay. Barbie Heimer. Uh, okay. Here's Barbie. <laughs> I've lost all perspective. Uh, no, just to give you a sense of the last 48 hours of our lives. Uh, we watched um, Oppenheimer two nights ago. And because there was an issue with the screening, we all got home having watched that film, which is a three-hour film at like, what, 2, 2 a.m., 2, yeah. 2, 2 30 a.m. Yeah. Uh, minimally slept. Gail slept for, what, one hour? Slept for like three hours. There you go. Woke up, wrote the review, shot the review, and then we did Barbie in the evening. You can read Gail's review uh, of Oppenheimer on the Film Companion website or watch it on the Reviews and More YouTube channel. Um, and so that all happened yesterday and then yesterday evening, sleep deprived, we went for Barbie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Which is on the other side of the city. Very much so. And then Pratyush and I'll review that on our Reviews and More channel. And on the Film Companion website. And yeah. now we have survived both. So we have really lived these last these two films for the last 48 hours. True, true. Uh, to set context. Do we want to start with like a Taranadar style one word <laughs> review? <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Let's, let's, do let's it. start with Oppenheimer. Uh, you guys go first. <sighs> Thudding. <laughs> <laughs> Just the blast and the way he uses the sound to like mm. make you feel mm-hmm. for me the blast was sort of anticlimactic because the sound cuts out you see the individual elements uh, right. when the trinity test happens there's the column of fire there's like the absence of sound right. and then they don't all come together to present one great spectacle right. which is which works in its own way because he's not trying to present it as like the pinnacle of scientific mm. achievement but yeah when the sound hits it's almost like a jump scare when you mm. get that shockwave mm. also like the clanging noise that you hear throughout the film where you're like is it coming from like Oppenheimer's heart is it in his head mm. it's just a very thudding film thudding yeah thudding it is. Such a... uh, for me Oppenheimer I would say overwhelming and I don't mean that in a negative mm-hmm. way, uh, in a negative way but yes overwhelming is what I'd say overwhelming how it's just a lot it's just a, a lot of movie like sound everything you just it completely just like uh, you sort of get drowned in it I don't know how mm. else to say it you literally mm-hmm. get so lost in it uh, and it's just and it's just sensory it hits you in every way Mm. So yeah, overwhelming is, is what, uh, overwhelming, overpowering, something. But do you find it too hard to keep up with? Uh, when th- you say overwhelming, did you feel at any point like, okay, you've got... Yeah, I, I, I think back I together. mean that in, in a good way as well as, okay. as, as yeah, in, in terms of even a lot of just trying to keep up with it. So yes, mm-hmm. I'd say overwhelming in that sense as well. Mm. But Tish, what's yours? So for me, the word would be surreal because we were literally pressed up against the screen. We watched it in IMAX. Mm-hmm. We were the size of the subtitle. Uh... And you'll be literally pressed up against the screen and those images which keep cutting in the first half and we don't know if it's atomic, if it's galactic. Uh, I, I just walked out of the film full of these swirling images in my head and my dreams were just like a landscape of ruin. Uh, so surreal, surreal is the word that I would use. And Barbie. Vibe check for Barbie. Uh, just like... Uh, I think that's... Uh, sounds instead yeah, of just words. sounds. Just disappointing. 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 Uh, I would say the two words that come to mind are whimsical and annoying. Okay. Uh, whimsical to the point of annoying. Huh. Hmm. 
yeah, and yeah. For me, the one line of that is tries to be smart, tries to be fun, and fails to be both. Right, right. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's Fair. a lot of words. Sorry. I would be like intellectually bankrupt, but with a hyphen. <laughs> so I just like got away with that. Um, but let's, should we get Barbie out of the way then? Yes. Yeah, let's talk about yeah. Barbie. Yeah. What about it worked? Good question. When it's fun, it's really fun. When is it fun? But it's not fun enough. It's intermittently fun. When right. it's leaning into the goofiness, for me, the first 15 minutes set in Barbie Land were right. the highlight of the movie. Right. Uh, yeah, because then they're just committed to like being as goofy as they can, leaning mm. into the artificiality of the world. Uh, it's only when they move out into the real world and they start talking about feminism and gender roles and existentialism. But all of that just feels so shallow. You wish you'd go, they'd go back and mm. lean into the fun of it all. Mm. Uh, I think for me, yeah, I, I think there are moments that are a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but they're literally like, I feel like there's a handful, like the, the ones that come to mind is there's that, you know, the depression Barbie, that whole ad, mm. uh, that, that was right. like a fun thing. Even, um, even the bit of when you hear uh, Helen Mirren's voiceover, mm. there's that like meta moment where it's talking about sort of uh, uh, Margot Robbie. So, and, but the thing is, yeah, even these are annoying because they're, they're these standalone, really fun, cool, self-aware mm. meta sequences, but they, they're not recurring. Mm. So it's literally... You, It'll be fun in one way for a second and then do something completely different. So, but yes, there the, the are individual standalone sequences. A lot of fun. I really enjoyed a lot of Ryan Gosling. Uh, very good. Yeah, very, very much His so. His face is so funny. Yeah. And I did not realize beach is such a funny word. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a funny yeah. word. Uh, I think he really nails it as much as it can be nailed given this film. I really liked the production design. The fact that they mm -hmm. bloody built... Like dollhouses, like yeah. that to me was insane. Barbie mm. world, the feeling mm -hmm. of it, the aesthetic of it was, was great. Mm. The only other thing which I liked uh, to an extent was I, I thought the casting was very interesting. Not, not to, uh, I'm talking about sort of the supporting actors. There was something that struck me about if this was not a, in quote, studio film made by an indie director, I don't, I don't think, if, if this wasn't Greta Gerwig, it was just mm -hmm. another sort of studio filmmaker, I don't think they would have cast a lot of those specific people. Uh, that I thought was interesting. Like I thought there were some really interesting attempts at specific casting. When, In what way? Like, for example, even like the, the sex education guys, there was one or two other yeah. actors where I just, I didn't feel like these would be the no-brainers you'd go for for this. Mm. So they cast Emma Mackey uh, in yeah. an interview. They said because she looked like Margot Robbie. Yeah. And when so, they did the mm. test, they realized yeah. they don't look the same. Either. Also, who's the actor from Secret Invasion? Sorry, I forget his name. Uh, Kingsley Bernard. Yeah. So yeah. I thought, again, he's very few of these guys are used well at mm. all or memorable, but I just thought that's interesting. These are not the most obvious... Uh, big Hollywood blockbuster. Like, mm. we've seen the obvious casting. And, you know, mm. this was still, especially for a movie like Barbie, where, you know, you know there are so many of those. Yeah. Uh, so that, I thought, was there was something interesting there. But mm. again, you know, we, we don't really get mm. to see enough of them. Uh, but yeah. But then again, it's not a very attractive prospect to offer someone, right? Because mm. all of these actors are so underserved in the movie. Yeah. Mm. Um, they show up in not only very tiny roles, but they have nothing to contribute. Mm. They're just there to make a joke or mm. there to be the joke. Like when mm. you see Emma Mackey's Barbie dressed up in that waitress outfit. Right. Um, they don't, like, to come back to Oppenheimer for a bit, it's full of, like, men who appear for, like, just a few scenes, but they have an impact. Mm. They contribute something to the narrative. And, like, you think about them. You think, oh, what a great performance. Mm. Or, like, oh, what a, like, stunning moment that right. the, the narrative has, like, swerved. Mm. Here, it's just they're there to be there. So mm. you can see a familiar face and be like, oh, I know that person. Mm. But I don't feel, I feel like they were very underserved. Mm. I mean, I was, why I wanted to begin with things that we liked about the film was that mm. I struggled to find more than one thing. The one thing was just Ryan Gosling's <laughs> performance, I yeah. thought, mm -hmm. was very interesting. Uh, not interesting, it was very, it did what it want, was supposed to yeah. do. Mm. Uh, because on the metro, on my way, while I was sort of tapping out the review, I was just, 
so frustrated with the film, right? I like when I said I when I say ideologically bankrupt, I mean what is the feminism that it's trying to push forward? Right? It wants to make fun of the fact that they cast Margot Robbie, mm. but at the same time wants to milk Margot Robbie's yeah. idealized beauty, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way. And uh one of the huge issues that I had with it uh ideologically is this idea that there's no desire in the film but the thing about patriarchy the thing about these things is that it's rooted it comes from desire and by not uh thinking about desire by making them these sexless creatures mm-hmm. you've completely removed the thing which makes patriarchy difficult it's like yes men are problematic and assholes but yet we yearn for them sexually mm-hmm. and that desire makes that patriarchy all the more complicated and by completely excising any semblance of desire from the film you're trying to make patriarchy something that you can solve very easily mm. and that solvability of patriarchy just made me mad so I, i didn't know what to make of the film because it's saying the most banal obvious things mm. right it really felt like feminism 101. for kids yeah, yeah. like literally but is it for kids like would a, a kid listening to this phrase sexualized capitalism what are they going to make of it which is mm. i think one of the reasons where the film gets lost where it's clear that she's trying to make a fun film for adults at the same time as make a flashy fun film for kids mm-hmm. and i think she fails at both mm-hmm. in the sense that like even the stuff for us it's it, it's fun in moments but the the all the messaging feels very very heavy handed and even the stuff as a kid you know you look at barbie world and how again it, it works in these moments mm-hmm. but it it really isn't what you, so and, and i think in trying to do both it sort of fails at, at neither but the thing that one of the things that re, that annoyed me most about the film is the world building just frustrated me i was just trying to understand what the, the hell are the rules because yeah. you have barbie land okay then you have the real world mm-hmm. how the two interact and intersect is just illogical and it keeps changing exerting influence on each other exactly. right at one point you're seeing the barbie land exerting influence in the real world in yeah. terms of ken sales yeah, yeah. and on the other hand you're having real life exert influence on barbie land mm-hmm. uh, but but none of it is is uniform but again it felt like the film was trying to be whimsical so hard that you're like okay let's just roll with it but even then you're left questioning these things right. which means it didn't succeed at whimsy yeah. either but so much of it I, i think that's a perfect way to put it the fact is the very fact that you're questioning it means it hasn't worked yeah. but there's so much let's roll with it mm. like uh, like you're saying you, the whole plot is about america ferrera's character being sad so that's influencing this barbie mm-hmm. the idea that whatever happens in barbie land like you said influences the sales in the real world the uh, you, the pratis the point you made which is very interesting that the real world looks like our world so it seems the same but then mm-hmm. if you look at the mattel corporation that is like sort of hyper animated and that whole world yeah. they they are all cartoons uh the, the scene that really annoyed me was when Barbie first meets um Margot Robbie first meets uh, America Ferrer's daughter's character at mm-hmm. at, at school at school yeah. and she's saying I'm Barbie they seem to think she's a deranged nut job which makes sense mm-hmm. but then they go and lecture her about why Barbie sucks mm-hmm. you know like and what it's done for for women and it just fe- feels just felt very very strange none of it feels aren't so the world building really annoying right till the end just how the two influence each other interact it just and I kept questioning it and it didn't it didn't add up for me at all yeah mm-hmm. and the baffling thing is it's it's reception has yeah. been uniformly positive mm-hmm. even in the theater yesterday i think a lot of people were cheering exactly when they were supposed to cheer yeah. yeah and 
but we found it, it was there's something very obvious right about it exactly like that whole monologue that america ferrera gives yeah. about the contradictions of being a woman these are things that we already know right but it feels like it was written in for women to be like oh my god yes finally someone said it but yeah. like people have been saying it all along exactly but women in the audience were cheering for it right but my thing is even if you're having a monologue that's clearly aimed at sort of applause mm-hmm. it didn't feel earned at all at all yeah yeah it's Amer- like so many of these character arcs of america ferrera's characters going into barbie land mm-hmm. and then for some reason just bursting into this monologue and then and then that becomes a device that they have to use to sort of cure all the other barbies but mm. it didn't feel earned whatsoever mm. um and so but that's what i was telling you I wouldn't be surprised if this movie does well with audiences because if you zoom all the way out you don't engage with any of the nuances any of the details or it's literally if you just see it as big flashy um and uh, fun in parts and it it has enough you know hooting moments where it's mm-hmm. like okay you know feminism or mm-hmm. she said the thing that's yeah. all and if it, if 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 that's your expectation the bare basics I think it it would sort of work for people but no it it really is is so all of the place and and very disappointing also the movie to me was so tokenistic in the way that it treated women sometimes that it sort of fell into the same trap that it was critiquing mm. like for example in the dance scene in the beginning you see that there's a barbie in a wheelchair right. you never see her again yeah. was she just there to be like oh you can have women like yeah. this too and feature them in a movie but like what the happens to her who's a, in in the who film who gets to not do anything yeah you know uh do we have anything more to say about the film or should we just swerve to oppenheim i think we should i've got one more thing to say there's so much talk uh, and i can see why online about how brave this is because this film is basically produced by mattel the toy company mm-hmm. right and how brave it was for them to back a film which is so because mattel is the bad guy in the in, in the film to an extent mm-hmm. but if you zoom all the way out it's not because all this film really tries to do and i think it might succeed is make barbie cool relevant and woke again uh, mm-hmm. and and so it's almost like you can just see it's all aimed at a toy sales so right. the mm-hmm. whole idea of like it's so cool that the company's willing to make fun of itself as if that's a thing to applaud yeah. but ultimately mm. you know it's a whole idea well, actually what is it saying at the yeah. end i mean yeah. i actually don't know what it's saying at the end the last 15 minutes are baffling but the point is <laughs> yeah like it, it really is just making barbie aspirational mm-hmm. and cool again mm-hmm. so you know who really wins so even I, the fact that this is a warner bros movie that makes fun of the snyderverse yeah. you know mm-hmm. i mean these are do we really have to applaud that yeah. Yeah. that yeah. a corporation can actually laugh at itself is itself. that something that's really something yeah. that we should be happy about proud of be positively critical of so if you're you know, like pausing the movie every once in a while to be like this is the specific outfit go online and look mm. for this barbie outfit what buy that? that for your barbie that's, that's what that was it's right sales. it's just sales it's i sales. mean you can take make a few jokes at yourself if the bottom line is you're getting more sales yeah. right it's not a heroic act yeah mm. which i guess is the ultimate failure because i guess when all of us heard that greta gerwig is making a barbie film mm. the big question was can you have sort of an artistic film or like a cool good film whatever made within a corporate setup that actually achieves something mm-hmm. but at the end of the day all said and done it's just furthering the yeah, agenda of like yeah it wasn't the yeah. film that we want yeah. but here's the thing even if it was furthering the agenda mattel yeah. gave them billion dollars yeah. of profit i mm-hmm. don't care just give me a good film give me yeah. a good film yeah. there's not an ounce of tension that you can yeah. trace in the film yeah. the 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 chase sequences are so oddly staged the stylization there's not a strain of beauty in the film yeah. you know Uh, for me the real world is where the cinematography becomes so ugly there's not a yeah. single frame that i can hold on to at least when you're in barbie land everything is according to a certain aesthetic mm-hmm. i thought the dance sequence was shot really well mm-hmm. you don't agree with me i know i thought okay. because the thing about a dance sequence is that i can see it yeah. i don't feel it hmm uh i can see the fun they're having i'm yeah. not feeling it i was feeling it for me that's what i was fully mm-hmm. invested in the movie as long as they were in barbie land and then everything sort of started to slide downhill Okay. Should we swerve? Let us swerve. Something more meaningful, yeah. 
to Oppenheimer, what do you, where do we, where do we start? You know what? I'll tell you where we're going to start. Mm. We're going to start, I'm going to be a little autocratic here. We're going to start <laughs> at that moment of where, the, where Oppenheimer is looking at images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. But the camera is not looking at the images. The camera is just looking at Oppenheimer's face. Mm-hmm. What do we make of that? Uh, for me, it left me wanting more because I loved the idea because this scene, the, the other scene that comes to mind uh, that's sort of the sister of this one is the one where the, the Trinity test, the first yeah. thing you see yeah. is you don't see the explosion. You see the look on his face, mm-hmm. the sound of his breathing and the reaction he has. And that's why it's a beautiful moment. And then you see the explosion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in contrast, in this scene with Hiroshima, it's all so focused on the effect it has on him mm-hmm. and we don't actually get to see it which is fine, but at the same time, it, it put me off because one of the weird things I found about the film, which I don't know if it's a bad thing, I just found it so interesting that to me, the big takeaway in terms of my empathy and what I felt for is how Oppenheimer was screwed over by the government mm. Mm. rather than the horrific loss of life, mm-hmm. which it does touch on, but it's more about how the guy felt about it. Mm. And so I just felt that I was, yeah, I just felt that like there's some, you're sort of limiting the point you're limiting the impact of the tragedy of it by just showing how he was affected by it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think it could have had more impact because to me, that, that's one of the things that keeps running through the film, which I think it does well. How heartlessly and carelessly these people discuss life. The, the mm-hmm. sort of the American yeah. authorities talk about like which, you know, uh, which city to bomb. Mm-hmm. And no, I don't want to bomb that one in Japan because I went on honeymoon there, which is, you know, even the idea when the celebration scene, you know, when, when the war is over, mm-hmm. you see all these people around Oppenheimer celebrating when he's giving that speech. Yeah. And I just kept thinking, you're celebrating 200,000 people that just died. So I thought it did all of that really well. So I just felt that, again, I love the idea that when these big things happen, it's focused on him and his face. Mm-hmm. But it did leave me wanting a bit more. That like I felt it limited how it could have brought the, the atrocity to life, I thought. Hmm. I think it's in, very much in keeping with the scene where he's made the bomb and then he doesn't know what's going to happen to it. And then he has to hear about it like 16 hours later on mm. the radio. Yeah. And then even then, like you're still with him in his perspective as he's finally confronted with what it's actually like. To me, it's like, okay, yes, the obvious reaction to Hiroshima and Nagasaki is tragedy. That is the only, rea- I mean, is, is mm. pain for them. That's the only reaction you can have. But your reactions towards Oppenheimer, that's more complicated. Mm. You can despise him throughout mm. the movie for what he's done, but also in that moment, it's asking you to feel pity for him. Mm. That's a very complicated thing the movie does. It's asking you to feel pity for him and his guilt over the bombings and not the bombings themselves. Mm. But I think it's also a very effective movie in that it presents a person as a very complicated person mm. with all the nuances. Mm. Yeah. So when Christopher Nolan said that he wrote the script in the first person, mm. right? It's entirely from yeah. Oppenheimer's perspective and Oppenheimer didn't see mm. the, the blast and so of course they're not going to show it. But what he did, Christopher Nolan did instead was that scene where he walks into that crowd, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And he's in front of them and then he's, mm-hmm. sudden, he's haunted by visuals yeah. of the audience members' faces peeling. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I think the film was not interested in saying Hiroshima Nagasaki was bad hmm. because that's because that is apparent it's apparent yeah. and it's yeah. obvious like we don't need to come to a theater to be told that Bombay yeah. City is terrible uh, but what it did which I thought that scene did really well was show how within Oppenheimer he had the capacity to feel both proud of what he did but also mm-hmm. incredibly devastated by mm-hmm. what he did yeah. at the same time to feel both 
pride and I don't know if regret is a word, but regret or regret adjacent or whatever. Guilt, probably. Guilt, yeah. perhaps. Uh, yeah, so th- and, and I think that's because online the, the rhetoric is very much like he should have been a little more stronger, he should have been mm. more clearer about the ideology of the film. Um, which is why I asked her yesterday if Oppenheimer were there today and watched the film, would he have, would he feel more regret or less regret? Mm. Isn't uh, it true that um, he said till his dying day that he doesn't regret building the bomb? Is that, if I'm not wrong, yeah, he said that he doesn't You read regret. Prometheus, right? Uh, yeah, but uh, where I've reached in the book, he hasn't okay. said that. Okay. Uh, no, no, uh, mm-hmm. so the partner who works uh, mm-hmm. with us, she told me that apparently he said that till, till, sort of till the end, he, he never regretted building the bomb he regretted that it was used mm. in Japan, Japan versus not mm-hmm. yeah the, their biggest regret was I wish all the scientists wished that they finished it earlier so it could have been used on Germany mm-hmm. that's what good looked like mm. and Japan was the mm-hmm. regret what was the one thing about the film that I think we, all three of us were haunted by it right yeah uh, what was the one thing that really stuck with you for me the ending like just like for so long you feel like when Nolan's reaching forward into the future presenting an event and then presenting versions of it in the future. For me, for a long time, I felt like he was getting justice for his protagonist who'd been screwed over so badly by Mm. Louis Strauss, so badly by his own government. And it felt like the film was on his side. Mm. And then you get the ending montage, uh, not the montage, the ending cutting back and forth between the planet on fire and Oppenheimer's face. And you realize he's actually at that moment condemning his protagonist for what he's done and his protagonist is feeling regret over it. Mm-hmm. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot with regard to like Nolan's films. Like if you look at his earlier movies, they've all been about individuals who are preoccupied with like very singular things like mm-hmm. prestige. They're obsessed with magic. Inception, he's just obsessed with getting back to his kids. And then in his later works like mm-hmm. Interstellar, he's looking at like more broadly planetary implications. He's mm. looking at climate change. Even in Tenet, right, the future generations mm. want to kill off the previous mm. ones because they've wrecked the planet. Mm. And to me, this is very in keeping with how his approach is broadened from like only looking at single men and their obsessions to looking about the implications on the planet as a whole. And like, is Nolan now really thinking about where we are as a species, what we've created, how we've ruined the planet. Mm. And the last words that he says is, I believe we already did. Mm. We've already set in motion a chain of events that could ruin our planet. And it's a very haunting last image and a last sentence to leave you with. Yeah. Uh, I think the two things that I was thinking about most, one is exactly that, the last 15 minutes. And uh, I think you said it far better than I could about, yeah, just the implications of, of mankind creating the tools of its own destruction mm-hmm. um, and how we're all screwed. That for sure, because I, I, I thought it was such a powerful sort of last whatever half an hour, mm-hmm. whatever that was. The other thing is I kept, I keep thinking about this idea of, I don't know whether uh, to be impressed by how much Nolan is wanting to challenge his audience because it really, for me, it it wasn't the most accessible film. It's refusing to be sort of straightforward, digestible. Mm -hmm. It's really looking at least, you know, specifically the first half, you know, the, the way it throws everything at you. I kept thinking that this is not a this is not a movie that's telling me a story. It's a movie that expects me to know the story so I can appreciate the movie. Um, so that was obviously a challenge. So I was this whole idea of how much he wants to challenge us, but at the same time, which I think is very impressive and interesting, especially f- at a, a director as big as him who has such a big sort of audience, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. And then obviously just like or to be put off with the idea that you know the ultimate question is: Was there a version of this movie where you can still feel? all of those things, you can still have that level of intimacy without it being so complicated, mm-hmm. without being so dense, without feeling like you're drowning in it. Um, in, in it. Yeah, so that's what I keep thinking. Like It's such an interesting thing because on the one hand, 
if I really wanted to, it is easy to be frustrated at 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 how much of how how it's refusing to be sort of straightforward. Um, and is that would that be diluting it if he did? But at the same time, it's so interesting to me that despite throwing so much information at us, how much I am able to hold on to and and mm-hmm. sort of retain, which is also sort of its own triumph. So I thought that's because even in in Dennett, uh, you feel that to an extent, like you're really not even trying to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to use the word simple, but yeah, something that's that's easy to, to digest. So I yeah, I do really think it's his least accessible film, but also his bravest because all his other films, even if you don't, you can even if you don't engage with all the details of them or the depth of them, uh, they still work on on a more sort of basic blockbuster level. You know, mm-hmm. the Batman films, uh, Interstellar, mm-hmm. Inception, even Dunkirk, you really feel like you're on the front lines. And uh, this one doesn't have any facade to hide behind no genre no blockbuster no scale mm. it really is a drama made in such an interesting way um, so yeah that that's what stuck with me most what about you so I have always thought that Nolan is one of the finest image makers that we have and this is something that's not very often talked mm-hmm. about because there's so much else to talk about <laughs> I suppose um, and it is one of those things about his filmography that that, that one of the things that brought me to his filmography, just the way he's able to craft an image. Mm-hmm. And like three images really struck with me. One was that of an apple, that apple mm. with the drop of cyanide just leaking over its polished surface. Um, when they were building Los Alamos, um, there's that, uh, mm. the, the, wound, the wound up, wire. the barbed wire that's run up and they were unfurling it all of the dust that was falling through and then the wood dust that you can see pixelating mm-hmm. the screen. And then the last one which haunted me was the night of the Trinity blasting. Mm-hmm. It's pouring. And you have these cars and on the windshield you can see the light being reflected and it looks like a, a cluster of emeralds. And it's such mm. a... And like I said, we were literally pressed up against the screen which is what I also felt... I felt disenchanted afterwards. Like no cinema experience can be that so when you walked into the Barbie screen I just felt like I was miles away from the screen right Um, so I think that those those visual uh, I don't know those visual markers really moved me most and really stayed with me Mm -hmm. uh, lack of better but also uh, this is something that was like peripherally thrown around which was him reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland him Mm -hmm. looking at the Picasso painting Mm -hmm. listening to Stravinsky uh, and how all of these are like the modernists of that time, mm-hmm. right? They are the people who sort of pushed modernism in art and literature, in art and poetry and music. Uh, and how he is sort of embedding himself and so interested by that movement, that aesthetic rupture. Uh, and he wants to situate himself in that. So I think these were just some of the things that, I mean, I came home, I reached home at like 2.30 and I was, I just, I just had to read The Wasteland again. Mm. So it's a long poem, but... Uh, uh, I was just going to say one more thing that stuck with me, which I feel like we have to discuss is the casting, which is insane. Yeah. You know, the fact that you have, what, yeah. like 40, 50 recognizable actors, not all of them, sort of some of them, fairly big actors who are literally yeah. coming in for one scene. Some of them literally blink and you'll miss them, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. it's so interesting because you don't really spend that much time with enough of them, but at the same time, it's it's so nice and reassuring to see these familiar faces, mm. yeah. and they all seem to be given their moment. Mm. Exactly. Um, so what did Rami you guys Malik think? was yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And because he's such a recognizable face, yeah. right? So when he when we first saw him, we're like, is he just here for that? Yeah. Why is he here? And then he comes in in the second the half, end, yeah. and everyone there was like this sigh, like a cathartic mm. sigh in the audience, like oh, finally, you know, yeah. he's yeah. he's here, and you needed a recognizable face mm. for that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that was a really good, interesting, mm-hmm. ca- not interesting, very uh, effective casting choice. Yeah. Because yeah. he does have a very recognizable mm-hmm. face. You yeah, see it does. once and you know it's <laughs> You him. know it's 
But no, like you're talking about Nolan as an image maker, and I think that's what drew me to his works. Um, like yeah, they're intellectually stimulating and they make you think about them in some way. But like growing up, I didn't watch a lot of films in the theater, mm. so I knew that whatever I had to go watch had to be the theatrical experience. Right. I remember watching Inception and just being like, oh my god, the city folding in on itself, um, the van falling in slow motion, just all of these mm. things, buildings crumbling. There's a temple mm. with like water cannons bursting into it, mm. and I I knew from that moment on like I would watch whatever Nolan made, and like he's always rewarded me. Like the entire when you're watching Interstellar and you see the endurance spinning through space. the whole docking sequence to me he's always been a big screen filmmaker and i find it very interesting um with oppenheimer that the most recurring image that he keeps coming back to is killian murphy's face right i don't think we've ever seen that in any of his movies where he's like honed on to an actor's face and yeah. stayed with it for so long mm. it's always been these big set pieces tenet crashing a plane into an airport it's never just been someone's face very true yeah That's is there anything about the film that like particularly didn't work for you guys I think for me the first half if I didn't read American Prometheus and I didn't know what was going on I would be lost which is the book it's based on Yeah yeah uh for me this the editing works better a lot better in the second half like thematic and narratively and thematically because that's when the uh him talking to Einstein scene comes in yeah. mm, which, which is seen from different perspectives and it's also reinforcing the idea that some men are short sighted they can't believe that two people would be talking about anything bigger than they are mm. which is what the movie is talking about all along right being short sighted about invention being short sighted about yourself mm. so thematically and narratively that's for me where the editing worked the mm. first half for me was just bombardment of like timelines images events in his life and like each event is getting to a certain point you're like okay um oppenheimer was frustrated at work he poisoned mm. this teacher oppenheimer um did this he did that mm. each scene serves a specific point but it, they're just coming at you so fast mm. it was difficult for me at times to keep a hold of what was going on mm. you uh, you made a great point when we were discussing this yesterday ironically on the way to the barbie screening about <laughs> oppenheimer where you said that it would have made a great series and i think that's i really do think the amount of information the amount of players and characters here this yeah. really would be a, just in terms of doing the full justice to the story um yeah this would be a great show you think of like a chernobyl or something like mm. that where uh even because there's so much here again i haven't read the book but it's so obvious and clear that there's so much happening here about his life it touches on but doesn't go into mm. personal relationships uh and and sort of his marriages etc uh, mm. his marriage sorry uh, and things like that where the, the the film touches on it because it knows they're significant but it doesn't mm. sort of really go in on it um even though the, everything with the communist party mm. everything is sort of very scattered over which is understandable because there's yeah, so much yeah. ground to cover but yeah i i just thought that uh, to f- do full justice to the story you know maybe a, a series would be interesting i don't agree with that so i thought uh the density of it so i'm probably one of you i really like the first half mm-hmm. and i was relatively able to follow it with the thing with nolan's films that you don't intellectually get it mm-hmm. you just at least in the first go you just grasp at it mm. and it's that grasping that i'm very very moved by because there are so few filmmakers whose films you're able to just grasp at you just like mm. hold it um and this i was i was really able to and I, i i'm not interested in knowing more about the communist party like more than what he's given mm. you know like i'm i think the panjana made a great point about uh that ranch being so central to oppenheimer's psyche yeah. right like it's the space of innocence for him mm. it's the place where he spent his childhood mm. and the fact that you are literally mounting one of the most violent creatures of the 20th century in the space of innocence mm. that didn't come across in the film mm-hmm. and maybe small things like that they could have done something with mm-hmm. uh, but i thought the film 
did and said everything that it wanted to. The things, the peripherals are the peripherals, right? Mm-hmm. I, for him, it was just the story of Oppenheimer. It's just being in his headspace. Uh, and we were there. I think to extend it into a series also fractures the story. And it fractures the way the storytelling takes place. It fractures your relationship to the film. Uh, this needed like three hours of compressed time in an IMAX screen, literally your nose against the screen, watching the world be blown up. Mm-hmm. That's that's it, you know. That for me, that I didn't want more than what what was given. Uh, I was thinking, also thinking a lot about Robert Downey Jr. because it's very cool to see him as an actor yeah. again. Yeah. 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 He keeps saying in interviews that you know I didn't, I didn't yeah. know if I could still act after ten years of, of playing Iron Man. I thought the his casting was very interesting. This is me reading way too much into it, but like I always thought that you know as Tony Stark, he's been known now as the uh, sort of the ego, the full of himself genius, mm. and here. I got the sense that he's playing someone who's full of himself, who just doesn't have the genius, mm. but is sort of surrounded by them. And I just thought that's a very interesting piece of casting. Um, I also found it very funny that, like, he is, in every way, in quotes, the movie's bad guy. You know, mm-hmm. he's yeah. the guy by the end, you're like, well, that guy's a dick, you hate him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you watch, this is a movie with, like, 250,000 people died. Like, yeah. you know, the atrocities everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, yeah, it's like, he's the bad guy. And obviously you feel that, but I'm like, well, actually, you know, everyone is kind of. Uh, but no, I, I I thought it was very, very interesting and just the whole the whole trial was, was very interestingly done. Mm. I was, it took me a while to figure out the black and white part. Like, why is it black and white? I was mm-hmm. having one of those moments. Uh, yeah, yeah, I still, until she explained yeah, it to me. Yeah, same. It's it. everything that Oppenheimer doesn't see. Doesn't, doesn't see. see. I first point. thought at the start, black and white is post-Hiroshima. Uh, okay. And mm-hmm. that's sort of, huh. but no, but then we saw the Oppenheimer yeah. trials is yeah, also yeah. post that. Um, but yeah. I, I, so you mentioned the trial, sorry. I, I, I with um, Emily Blunt's character, mm. again, I didn't think the female characters were excellent in this film, and obviously Nolan mm. gets a lot of s- sort of flag for that. Uh, in terms it's of it's Yeah, I say this as a Nolan fan, like yeah. Yeah. he is unable to write Great women movie. characters that are more than just one thing, yeah. or more than just there for one purpose. Yeah, uh, but is that true of all his side characters who are not the protagonist? I feel like it's in Oppenheimer, like throughout. Generally, do mm. you, do you feel that? Feel uh, what? The fact that he's, his attention is so skewed towards the protagonist mm. that everyone sort of just blurs into their role. Uh, mm. Are there any sort of smaller characters that really that's interesting? Sometimes. I like, think... when you watch Inception, like, Arthur is just there to deliver exposition. Right. He's just there to explain to the audience what's right. going on. So, but I think I feel this more with women because he uses them so often mm. uh, as disposable characters like a woman mm. dies and that fuels the man's motive right that doesn't happen with like male characters in none that's of his true. movies do you see someone's male best friend dying and that's spurring the protagonist on mm. Mm. but now yeah i was just saying with emily blunt that you i definitely felt that you have with florence Pugh's character and, and, and mm-hmm. emily blunt's but i did like that emily blunt has the, sort of the coolest crowd pleasing scene moment. yeah, yeah the yeah. moment of the movie where she <laughs> dishes it back uh, I just love the way it's done where like she, she's sort of uh, she's fumbling with what I assume is alcohol. She seems very yeah. nervous and then that, that sort of lawyer guy gets in her face and then she just like schools him. It's such a like mass moment. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> it is a mass yeah, moment. It is, absolutely yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Closing question on this one. Mm-hmm. Where do you feel this fits in Nolan's filmography for you guys? I mean, I'm going to watch it again and then figure that out. Like for me, I'm, I, I think it's just too recent to the, slot it in. Yeah. yeah. But would you... I would say it's... Uh, I don't know. For me, it's really a problem of like the first half and the second half. Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. on a second viewing, it'll be better. Got it. But for me, Tenet was the opposite. I thought if I watched it a second time, which I did recently, everything would sort of click into place. Yeah. <laughs> but it just got more confusing for me. 
<laughs> Tenet for me is that film where like you have like the 40 minutes post watching the film where you're like, I get it. I can't explain it to you, but I get it. <laughs> and and I, I know enough that when I Google it, the things make sense. And after those 40 minutes, it's just all gone. It's, yeah. mm. so it's like when you're watching it, you get enough that you won't be able to like, uh, Pratish, what about you? Where does it fit? I think it's one of his finest films. Yeah. Mm. I, I won't be able to rank it like one, two, three, but yeah. I think it's the mm. film of his that is most emotionally potent. Yeah. And that is sensual. Like, the, my f- primary way of looking at cinema is sensual. Like, I don't go and looking at themes, intellectual. Like, that's not the thing that first mm-hmm. grabs me. The first thing is the sensuality, the emotional pungence of it. And this one really did. There were moments where I wept. And it would just be a f- waves, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, images yeah. of waves. And yet, here I was weeping. So I think this is definitely one of his most emotionally potent films. That's actually something that I wanted to ask you guys about. Because one of the criticisms of his movies is that he's cold and aloof. And when you're making a movie about the atomic bomb and not focusing on the victims of the tragedy, it's very easy to be like, okay, he's not going for emotion. But I didn't feel that at all. No, you, I, I was I very moved yeah. throughout the movie. For me, it's one of his most emotional films. Did you feel emotional? No, or I were agree. you at a distance from it? It didn't, it didn't feel like there was a lack of emotion whatsoever. Just, I guess, the focus of that emotion was, again, it's Oppenheimer. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. Which is, again, it's very, exactly you said, it's very tricky territory. Mm-hmm. To It's about how he feels mm-hmm. about things rather than about the things themselves. But no, I, I didn't feel uh, a lack of emotion. I think it's also... Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have felt that in his previous ones. It's one of the reasons uh, I think Interstellar is my favorite movie of his because mm. that's the yeah. one I feel the most. Yeah. It, it feels most about uh, people and how they feel about each other and how I feel about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I didn't feel like there was any lack of that here. Well, that scene where he looks at all the videos of his yeah. son oh, over the years yeah. every time. Yeah. Every time. And he gets me. So this was great. Yes. Uh, I think we've all unburdened ourselves. <laughs> Survived Barbenheimer week. <laughs> Survived Barbie. Loved <laughs> Oppenheimer. Okay, now that we've spoken about Barbenheimer at length, is there anything that you guys have watched, read, listened to this week that you want to recommend? I watched this gorgeous film, uh, which I was waiting to watch for a while now, called Return to Seoul. Mm-hmm. That's a film that I watched on movie. Mm-hmm. It was Cambodia's uh, entry for the Oscars last year. It's about this 25-year-old French adoptee coming back to Korea, South Korea, to find her parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not. it doesn't follow that traditional trajectory of uh, what you would expect a story like this to do. It keeps moving across time. It it's, but the thing about the film that really it has one of the most gorgeous posters that I've seen in a while which is actually what got me really excited for the film and in the film itself I think the beauty of it there are moments where the camera is just on her face as she's walking down the streets and suddenly you're seeing the shade of purple I don't think I've ever seen in my life mm. it's so pungent and it's so beautiful and it keeps you glued I think the sense of beauty that the film has is so rare. The attention to beauty and detail and emotional devastation. Yeah, I would 100% 10 on 10 recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will go. I This is a rom-com from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do what we do and we watch so much for work, increasingly we just really like cling on to comfort watches, just things mm-hmm. that we watch out of choice uh, that make us feel nice inside. Uh, so I recently re-watched a rom-com which I liked and I liked it even more the second time, which is Long Shot. It's uh, Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. And again, we live in the age where rom-coms are dead and they don't exist. And so you can't... So anything that comes out that's even sort of mildly effective, I just fall completely for. And this was... Uh, yeah, so it's Seth Rogen, Charlize Theron. It's, uh, and um, and yeah, it's just... It's, it's more sort of calm than rom. It's, it's very, very funny. 
but it's laugh out loud and and I really enjoyed it and it's just like the comfort watch I really needed. I watched it on YouTube where you can like rent movies and stuff. I'm going to bring this back to Oppenheimer because all I've been doing for the past <laughs> week is reading American Prometheus, the book on which it's based. Um it's a 900 page book. It's very dense. but it's also really well sourced um they've spoken to or either got correspondence mm. from people who knew oppenheimer people who'd worked with louis strauss it starts with his childhood it tells you what kind of upbringing he had the book is full of really fun anecdotes like there was a time when he was very into collecting rocks and uh, mineral mineralogy and he was corresponding with geologists and they were like wow you're very knowledgeable about this please come give us a talk at the society and he was 12 <laughs> and so life. he showed up and they put him on a box because he was too short to reach the mic stand and like the image of that is adorable yeah. and it also makes more room for ambiguity like right. in the movie you very clearly see him injecting cyanide into the apple right. in the book it's unclear whether he meant to kill his professor or just poison him but it's a very dense very evocative reading and the trinity test for me was a much more visceral experience from the book than the movie than the movie because there's a because throughout the book they keep talking about there being a small chance that they could ignite the earth's atmosphere right. they really didn't know what they were doing or what they were in for and in the book for a second they think it's happened one scientist thinks it's happened that the world has gone up in flames oh, and just reading that gave me goosebumps wow so uh, yeah please find and read american prometheus gorgeous one romcom one academy winner and one thick book <laughs> <laughs> those are your recommendations for the week thank you for listening this is fc popcorn a film companion original podcast i am pratyush and we had suchin mehrotra and gail sequera today thank you with movie each and every film is hand selected it's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime anywhere try movie free for 30 days at movie.com/filmcompanion2023 that's m u b i.com/filmcompanion2023 for one month of great cinema for free tune in to fc popcorn to catch us discussing trending topics in the world of entertainment and pop culture To never miss an episode, remember to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform.